are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. This is our second episode featuring pieces selected for Seamus 2018. And in this episode, I speak with composers who have already been on Lexical Tones before. The composers are Timothy Roy, Heather Stebbins, Carter Rice, and Ben Furman. We'll start out with Timothy Roy. Tim composes music steeped in imagery and illusion, which often seeks to conjure a sense of time, place, and feeling. His output encompasses works for acoustic instruments, electronic sound, and the intersection of these two realms. A doctoral student at Rice University, Tim currently resides in Houston, Texas, with his wife Sarah and their blue healer, Ziggy. Tim's piece, Behind the Back, for PIPA and Electronics, has actually been on the podcast on episode 31, It was selected as a finalist for the ASCAP Seamus Student Award. The piece has also been recorded and released on Albany Records, along with pieces by Chris Walzak, Kurt Stallman, Lei Liang, Shihui Chen, and myself, called Crossings, Contemporary Music for Chinese Instruments. We will hear that recording performed by Chen Yingchun of the Little Giant Chinese Chamber Orchestra. Here is our interview from episode 31 with the brand new recording. But anyway, uh, let's start off with uh, talking about your piece behind the back. Okay. Which which I know pretty well, actually. Right. Um, because, well, you can you can tell us what the, the situation um, <laughs> for writing this piece. Well, um, the situation uh, for writing the piece um, that sounds so so severe. The situation. Um, well, it was kind of severe. I mean, you remember when we uh, we were at ICMC together when uh, Shihui called me about it. Did she already did she already talk to you about she, it before you I left? I think had called me, um, or I called her. She emailed me and the, the asking me to call her, and it was like the day before I left. But um, I had just started in the program at Rice. Yeah, and I remember she sent me this email that just said. It was one sentence or something, and it said, like, call me when you have a second. <laughs> or some, yeah, sounds something, like, but it, that sounded, sounds like her. it sounded serious, you know. Um, and so I, I remember just thinking, like, oh, my God, am I, I already did something. I, like, screwed up, you know. Um, and so I called her, and she, she said, hey, I've got this um, project I'm putting together where I'm asking um, – former uh, Rice uh, comp graduates and a few current um, students to write pieces for the Little Giant Chinese Chamber Orchestra. And we're putting together a concert um, in Taipei, and everyone's going to sort of write for a different, uh, you know, group of players or, you know, soloists, and would you like to write a piece? and specifically, would you like to write a piece with electronics? And I said, I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, that sounds great. And she told me you were writing a piece. And uh, of course, uh, wait, wait, that was that was before you went to ICMC that she talked to you. Uh, yeah, I think she said that she you hadn't were writing. Talked to me yet? Well, she, I, th- I think she. <laughs> She either said that she was going to get you to write a piece, or she was going to talk to you about it, or but it, your def, your name was definitely mentioned. 
Um, she I think- definitely strong strong armed me into it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, mean, I, I I wanted to write the piece, but she she has that she has that way about her. You know, whenever I have described Shihui, uh, because we're, we're talking about Shihui Chen at Rice, um, whenever I have described her to anyone, I always describe her. She kind of has this like motherly feel about her, in a way. Yeah. I mean, at least to me. Um, I know that, uh, for instance, like, I don't think Steve Bachicha and her have the same relationship that I have with her. But in the same regard, like, she kind of sometimes just comes to me and is like, Rob, you need to do this. You need, you really need to do this. You should do this. <laughs> right. I'm like, oh, okay, okay I'll, I'll do it. You know? <laughs> but yeah, she's very supportive and... Uh you know helpful and generous with her her time and and yeah you know, she and what kurt. she does for all of us so yeah and kurt too of course yeah so you were gonna write uh something for the ensemble with electronics uh then she contacted me and then kurt was also writing with electronics and right she and uh chris walzak who all the way back uh episode nine Actually, when Chris was in China, uh, he's the only person I've ever actually been able to like have sitting across from me, you know, in real life <laughs> right. when doing these. Everyone else yeah. is just on Skype, but but uh, Chris was here, and he he was part of that project, and also uh, Shane Mons, um, and th- the yes. three of them were writing uh, just purely acoustic pieces, and the the little giant orchestra is made up of traditional Chinese instruments. So you, I, my piece um, was for Ditsa, which is a Chinese uh, bamboo flute, and uh, Sheng, which is a mouth organ. It's uh, it's kind of hard to describe, but it's it's like a uh, well, it looks like an organ. Yeah, it's it's like a harmonica with with pipes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, a harmonica with pipes. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. And then you were writing for the pipa, so yes. I wanted to ask you, you know, what was your approach in writing for that instrument? What kind of research did you do? Um, I should start back with when I hung up the phone on Shuei, um, which was a moment of sheer panic. Me and thinking, you were like, oh, well, what did I just agree to? You know, I have no idea what I'm going to do with this instrument, how I'm going to figure out how to write for this instrument. I knew that I'd, I'd come up with something, but I was, you know, I was worried about it. Um, and she provided everybody with, uh, I don't know if she sent you these materials, but she, she provided Shane and I with, um, scores and some resources and, um, and that was, that was somewhat helpful. Um, I went online and listened to a number of things, but most of what I could find was, was sort of like, uh, traditional Chinese pieces. Yeah. And that was helpful to a certain extent, but you know, I, I was, hell-bent on writing something that didn't sound Chinese, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I, since I studied with uh, Chen Yi at UMKC, I emailed her and I just said, hey, um, I've got this project. 
could you send me some scores of yours and, you know, whatever you can think of that might help. And so uh, just like her, she responded in like five minutes. <laughs> you can email her at, you know, 3.30 a.m. and she's going to respond and, and, you know, immediately. I swear that she never she never sleeps. Well, she's always I've never met her, but she's always been described to me as just a ball of energy. And she's a total ball of energy. Yeah, she's yeah, one of the the most uh kind and generous and supportive uh teachers I've ever had and she's just like go 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 all the time, you know. Yeah. But she sent me um a score for a, a chamber work of hers called Ning, which is a really fantastic piece and there's videos online um and you know i just i just read what i could about the instrument and something that i found was really interesting was that it's not originally even a chinese instrument that it um Mm -hmm. it's an instrument that uh evolved over hundreds of years out of basically lutes that were imported from uh the middle east and so you know some of what I was reading was talking about how the, the it's ironic that the pipa is it's sort of considered um, the most iconic instrument of uh, traditional Chinese music, but yet it didn't really originate from China. Yeah, directly. I mean, I'll actually quite a few of the instruments um, in that are considered traditional Chinese instruments, you know, they they kind of come from all over. That's actually a thing that is very prominent in Chinese culture. It's, you know, you 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 trace something that it's very that, that is very iconic. You trace it back and you realize that mm, that came from Japan or mm. that came from here or there, you know. So in in the instruments especially um that's that's something that i you know just by virtue of being over here that i have i've learned you know but in a certain way it's like china takes china takes something from a lot of different places but then makes it chinese Mm -hmm. yeah and definitely that's what happened to this instrument um i was i the most interesting thing that i read that really sort of got my mind going um and really, it's funny because, uh, I don't know if you remember, but she emailed, uh, Shuei, that is, emailed us at a, at a certain point, and she said, uh, it was really early. It was it was like long before our pieces were going to have to be done. And she said, I need a title for your piece. You need to send it today by 5 p.m. Do you remember that? I just, I literally just talked about this with um, a composer, Sarah Corey, because we were talking about titles oh. and how they're so hard. Yeah, I went and, to school with Sarah. And I brought that up. I I oh you went to school with Sarah? Yeah, at SMU. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, All she right. was a year uh, behind me. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, um, yeah, we talked about that that story about how Shuhei was just like, I need a title. They're making the program. I need a title. Give me a title. <laughs> right. And we're like, I haven't even started. I, I haven't, haven't even started thinking about, about it yet. This yet. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I don't so, care. I need a title. So I said, okay, I need to, I need to come up with something immediately. So I I started digging online just to try to come up with some bit of uh, something that could 
serve as extra musical influence. And I was reading this interesting article about um, how the uh, Chinese have this phrase that they use to play pipa behind the back. And uh, the phrase is, it's based on the fact that there are these murals in the Mogao caves in, uh, I think, the Dunhuang province. Yeah, these cave murals that depict women playing pipa and various instruments in, uh, it sort of looks like a, you know, a ceremonial uh, situation or a social gathering. And many of them are seemingly floating in the air. They're doing all these acrobatic moves and some of them are actually playing the instrument um, slung behind their backs. Mm -hmm. And so um, this phrase to play people behind the back is used apparently in an equivalent way that we might say to think outside the box. So mm, it, it okay, represents yeah. a sort of uh, innovation, uh, virtuosity of uh, thought. And so that, that sort of got me thinking. And, you know, the piece, of course, ended up being called Behind the Back. And, you know, I was really thinking about uh, the literal virtuosity of the instrument and um, what it takes to play such an instrument, but then also this idea of playing behind the back. It was it was something that uh, conjured different ideas for me. Um, I did think of Jimi Hendrix because it's like yeah, that's what that's what I was immediately going to ask. You about. can't yeah, I I couldn't get away from thinking about that. And there aren't any direct references to Hendrix, but there are places where I use a uh, bandpass filter that that you know moves to to create kind of like a you know a wah type effect right um, yeah. in the electronics but well actually when when the, I, I think I know where you're talking about um and actually when we were rehearsing that Kurt I think called that your your Led Zeppelin part <laughs> yeah probably there's like you know it's yeah, it yeah, something yeah. uh like a uh, wonton song or, or something there's there's but, definitely um, yeah there's definitely some sharp nine stuff that 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 was another i guess um subtle reference to to hendrix or you know 70s rockers uh 60s 70s rockers um with these like sharp nine dominant harmonies that happen in right. places yeah but in the electronics, when that happens, you also have uh, sounds of Chinese opera gongs going, and those have that wow kind of yeah, exactly. kind of sound. So I was wondering if that the the you know, and that's modeled. I was wondering if you modeled your electronics after a Chinese opera gong. But it sounds like you were kind of thinking of it like a wah wah pedal. Well, um, the answer is yes. <laughs> So good I, answer. I yeah, love it. No, I mean, I I went and I I had recorded some percussion instruments with Brandon Bell and Craig Hallshelt, who are both uh, Brandon, Craig, Brandon, doctoral students here at at Shepherd, and um, we just sort of hung out at their their studio in the Heights and drank beer and recorded 
different instruments for this other do piece sh- that I'm writing for them. Do they share a studio with Luke Hubley too? Uh, I thought it was just them, but um, I think it's is it just like, the two of them. It, well, is it um, is the building kind of like an old elementary school? It is, yeah, Mecca. Yeah, yeah, they, they share with Luke. And uh, when I was back in last January for rehearsals, that's where we rehearsed with Luke. <laughs> I walked into the rehearsal and Luke's like, you're up, want a beer? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, they, like, have the, sure. they have the mini fridge. Um, yeah, it's a pretty They've sweet got a great setup. setup. Yeah, 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 it really is. But um, yeah, we were recording stuff for this other piece that um, I'm writing for them. Um, still writing for them. Need to get back to at some point. But <laughs> yeah, they always two percussion and electronics. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, know we have cool. this. We have this thing, you know, going on between us as to you know which one will be more awesome. Although, are, is yours done? It's getting there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think yours is going to be more awesome, um, because uh, mine is mine is all using handheld instruments. You know, so it's yeah, it's not going to be big and bombastic. You know, I'm yeah. not going to have drums or anything. It's going to be like kind of uh, meticulous. Mm-hmm. I guess is a word that could. I don't know, but it'll be cool. Yeah, mine's. But, I mean, mine's gonna be a little nuts and it's for the Terrell Sky Space, so that's cool. You know. Yeah. Um but anyway anyway. Brandon and Craig had these uh Chinese opera gongs. One was pitched D and the other was A, I think. And when you strike them they have this uh this pitch envelope, this upward pitch envelope, uh to where the pitch just sort of like gradually rises. Like yeah yeah and it seemed to me that um the harder you struck them the longer it took for that envelope to um evolve Uh and so um i basically i just had them strike these differently pitched gongs at different um dynamic levels and i ended up you know using them in the piece um, but I was thinking about how I could connect that sound to the people because they both have a sort of nasal timbre, and um, I was using a lot of bending in the piece mm-hmm. um, yeah. with the instrument, um, quite a bit of bending. And so um, there is a section where those gongs are really prominent, and then there are these low notes that are their uh, cello pizzicati notes, but you can't really tell because they're so heavily processed. But Yeah, couldn't um, tell at all. Yeah, but they just sort of sound like, you know, 70s funk bass or something. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which um, my wife uh, calls this one section the uh, section where aliens are dancing, is what she calls <laughs> how she refers to it. Yeah. <laughs> oh sarah I yeah that. i mean this other piece i'm writing for brandon and craig has uh has this uh, moment where I, i'm using like th- this field recording of uh ducks and geese and she calls it uh it also has like synthesizers going on and so she calls it space ducks so that piece is space ducks <laughs> and this piece is the uh the alien dance party 
you know. So when electronics are being used, she just assumes it's in space? You know, I mean, I guess I'll have to get to the bottom of that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the electronics in particular, I thought, you know, just just knowing that you are a student of uh, James Moberly, um, I thought the electronics had a kind of Moberly influence. Yeah, that maybe through osmosis. I mean, that's, that's, that's more than, I guess it's more than just you being his his student. Like, there was um, around the two-thirds area when you mm-hmm. really start kind of cooking rhythmically. Right. Um, it kind of, it. there was something about it, and maybe it's the, the sounds, maybe? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. What, what were you doing in terms of... Uh, where you were getting your your sounds for the electron? I mean, we already talked about the gongs and the cello, right. pizzicato, but a but lot there, of there's the, a lot more in there. The pitched material um, was mostly drawn from me playing electric guitar and processing mm-hmm. it heavily. Oh wow! Uh, okay, and there was some synthesis as well. So those two things sort of combined, but. Mm-hmm. There was no sampling of of like a pipa or anything like yeah. that. Um, and then uh, how is the how is the pipa tuned? The um, pipa is, is tuned it... in a traditional way. It's um, tuned uh, A D E A. So uh, the low A is actually the um, bottom space of the bass clef. Uh huh. And then um, D in the middle line of the bass clef, and then E a whole step above that, um, and then that's a. so weird. Yeah, it's very it's very weird, and it was um, it was hard to figure out what I could do to avoid having that sound. You yeah. know, it's kind of like if you wanted to write for classical guitar, and guitar is such an idiomatic instrument. Uh-huh. And um, I don't know. I just feel like you hear the tuning. Yeah, to a certain you, extent, you, you end up hearing. But I mean, just like think, trying to figure out, like, okay, how did you did you like tune your guitar like that so you could kind of figure out, you know, finger placement and stuff. I did. I took out. Um, I took out my uh, Les Paul that's mostly been just sitting under my bed because I don't have time to play it. And I used that as um, a means of finding sonorities that were somewhat comfortable. Were you thinking about this like a pipa or were you thinking about it like a guitar? I was thinking about it like a pipa. Uh So um, I did the absolute best I could to not treat the instrument like a guitar. Um, Yeah. Because there are so many... Uh, playing techniques that are unique to the instrument and so um, and there are all these symbols that you have to use in connection with these techniques Um, and so I studied that a lot and just figured out what I could do with those techniques and um, yeah I mean I, I was mostly concerned with trying to find interesting sonorities um and you know chords that uh, didn't sound—I don't know—didn't sound like 
the the traditional Chinese music that I had been listening to. I wanted to do something different.
Next, we will hear a new piece from Heather Stebbins. Heather was a guest on episode 19 of the podcast, and this was actually the first time we'd met in person. Heather Stebbins is a composer of acoustic and electroacoustic works. Heather resides in Boston, Massachusetts, where she splits her time between composing and teaching mathematics at a college prep high school. So I'm back here with a returning podcast guest, Heather Stebbins. How's it going, Heather? It's going pretty well. You know, it's 65 degrees and sunny, so I can't complain. So uh, you have a piece on uh, Seamus called What I Am Not. And this version is for fixed media. And I read on SoundCloud that this was a collaborative project with uh, Will Lang, and that's Will Lang of Loadbang, correct? Yes. Yeah, so he, um, there's a version for trombone improvisation plus the fixed media. Um, all of the trombone sounds are his own. Um, we've talked about sort of sitting down and, and kind of solidifying um, what sound should happen when, but I've been so happy with what he's done with the electronics um, that we, you know, I don't feel the need to create a score for it. So it's that, that part of it, or that version of it rather, is definitely a collaborative um, piece rather than, you know, composed by me and performed by Will. Um, when you were when you were writing the fixed media part, did, was there any input from him or did that kind of come, did, was his part of this piece kind of come later? It came later. So um, he wanted me to write a piece for him. And I was at a point where I was working with these sounds um, and put them together and really loved what I did, but was like, I cannot imagine a trombone with this. <laughs> I said, Will, check this out. This is something I'm working on. Is it something you're into? If it is, then we can go for it. If it's not, I'll start from scratch. And he was totally into it. I was like, you know, let me... I've got some sounds I've been working on. Let me try improvising with it, and it worked. So, what are the what are the sound sources, and and kind of how are you transforming them? Um, so, I'm not going to give away all my secrets, but a lot, <laughs> most of the <laughs> most of the source material are recordings um, using special microphones to record um, electromagnetic fields of different types of old technology, new technology, um, and then some other recordings that I, it's pretty minimally processed. Um, it's more just my uh, layering and kind of recombining of, of source material. So I, I think I read in the program notes that, this, that these sound sources were kind of foreign to you, yeah? yeah. So, so what was the driving force between, you know, is, was it just to kind of uh, break yourself out of habits or, or just, just curiosity or, so why did you, why did you go after these electromagnetic sources? Um, all of the things you said. Uh, I had felt like, you know, I'd spent many years writing electroacoustic works using very similar source material. Um, Recently, I feel like what I'd been working on was very granular, but still coming from the natural world. And I wanted to work with the same sort of like quiet, but clicky and um, sort of ever moving, very um, sort of having a lot of energy, but still being small. And I stumbled upon these recordings and thought, oh, that's exactly what I'm looking for, except it's not natural at all. It's all digital, um, which is not something that I normally work with. But, you know, it's like, you know what, I'm going to try this. And I ended up, you know, reworking things in a way that I still think sounds like a Heather Stebbins piece. So <laughs> if I can say that. Yeah. 
Yeah, you, you you can definitely see your own style, and yeah, it's oh, it's a Heather Stebbins piece. So I know you don't want to give away too many secrets, but what were some of those sources that you were getting these electromagnetic sounds from? I'm just curious. Um, so they're not my own recordings. I will admit to that. Um, now that my life is a lot busier, I don't have as much time to record my own stuff. So these were recorded by. Um, another person and their recordings of everything from PlayStation 1s to um, iPhones to uh, electric razors. Um, So just like the gamut of um, electronics and the sort of recordings of the fields that they put off. Well, I mean, you you would expect you would expect that uh, when you're doing something like that, you might get a lot of, you know, kind of quote-unquote loop sounds or repetitive sounds but I think you uh there are a lot of moments that are very gestural and you know have a lot of life to them so was that was that just like you had the source material and you went searching for those particular moments definitely I mean that's sort of in lieu of processing it was mostly editing that I did with this piece Um, I mean there is certainly processing going on but I tried to keep the sounds um as true to their original form as possible but I just edited the hell out of them and um, uh, created what I hope is a form that is, you know, followable and um, gave the piece some direction. Because you're absolutely right. Like, a lot of the source material is six minutes of a sound that kind of loops. I mean, there are some internal gestures, but for the most part, it's pretty static, for lack of a better word. Um, So, yeah, I had to do a lot of shaping with just, you know, volume and panning and, and, you know, splicing and and layering and that kind of thing so uh we're gonna listen to it right now and again this is the uh, record this is the piece what i am not and before we go um can i mean we've already heard this and i mean you can go back i can't remember the episode number right now but you're in the teens like i think you're 18 episode 18 so definitely go back and listen um to that episode 18 but uh, just remind us, you know, what's your website? What are your social social media? You know, how people can connect with you. So my website is www.heatherstebbins.com. I am no longer on Facebook. Um, thanks, Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> Hashtag delete Facebook. All right. Um, you can find me on SoundCloud at HL Stebbins and Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, at Rome Heather, where I tweet about mostly just my anger at politics and and my my other life which is um, a mathematics educator so awesome so this is what i am not by heather stebbins
Now we hear from a member of the Adjective New Music Composers Collective, Carter Rice, whose episode was number four on lexical tones. Carter John Rice is a composer, audio engineer, and music educator currently teaching at Western Michigan University. As a composer, Rice draws inspiration from a wide array of sources, including acoustic phenomena, cognitive science, and classical mechanics. Rice holds a bachelor's degree in music theory and composition from Concordia College, a master's degree in music composition from Bowling Green State University, and a doctor of arts in music composition from Ball State University. So I'm here with Adjective Composer Collective member, fellow member, Carter Rice. How's it going, Carter? Very good. Thank you for asking. So your piece we saw yesterday, and it was a video piece called A Course Morning. I'm going to read your program notes verbatim. And then quote one of my favorite movies, Miller's Crossing. Your program notes were, this piece aims to take a mundane process and transform it into something intense, visceral, and humorous. The quote is, always the yapper, huh? (laughs) (laughs) My point is like, and we we did this when I was doing the, the original podcast for you. It's like, I can never find any information about your pieces. So it makes preparing just so much more difficult. I, I do apologize for the difficulty I'm creating. Know that that is a byproduct. It is not intentional. Um, but it, my whole life, I've always just been a fan of listing as little as possible in the hopes that the work sort of, um, what I would want you to know about it becomes apparent. Now, I'm not in any way saying that those who write lengthy program notes, that that's like an issue. You know what I mean? It's just the way that I approach especially at pieces like this, right. you kind of you should you should be able to know what you're getting when you watch it. Short, sweet, and to the point. Yeah. So let's expand on this a bit. It's a work for video and electronic sound. So first, where can people go to see the video? And and then what are they going to see? Sure. Um, so the, the video is on my website, if anyone would like to watch it, um, which is carterricecomposer.com. Uh, and they will see footage um, of a very dramatic cup of coffee being brewed. <laughs> And, and I, I mean, I drink a pretty normal amount of caffeine. I, I feel like if you watch the video, you would think I am a, a, a slave to coffee. But it was sort of right in the middle of my doctorate. So it was at a moment where the amount of caffeine was at an all-time high. And so uh, filming it, I, of course, brewed many cups. I didn't just brew the one. Um, and I drank most of it. <laughs> and so uh, by the end, yes, I was, I was feeling fine. But, yeah, you'll see footage of a, of a sort of traditional drip coffee pot brewing some coffee pouring some pouring some coffee and the the religious like experience it is as you take the first sip <laughs> a very dramatic take on your morning coffee and it's really beautifully shot i might add so you've done several pieces for video recently so how did this fascination with with doing video just has is it a recent development how did it come about Sure, that's a good question, and thank you for saying it was shot well. I appreciate that, because um, I, you know, one thing, and, and maybe we'll talk about this in a little bit, but I've I've started to incorporate humor into more and more of my works, and I only like to do humor in my pieces if I know that they're still at least technically sound, because you don't want to have something that's humorous, uh, sorry, humorous and just garbage. But anyway, right. um, <laughs> I, yes, I have done I've done video more video pieces recently, and I plan to continue to do it. It's a medium that I love to explore, and I think it affords all sorts of creative potentials, which is really fun. Um, but it actually started way back when uh, my my father owns a video production agency, and so I grew up doing That's right. we yeah about this, a little right? bit yeah. So I grew up around like cr- cameras and everything well before audio, um, and so I was always comfortable with a camera or 
uh, concept of video editing and uh, you know working in that environment. And then when I was you know exploring more electronic music at Bowling Green, um, I saw that a number of people were doing video pieces, and I was like, oh, that. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I can do that too. And it, it just made perfect sense since I already had some of the requisite skills. And then I was able to take some formal classes um, while getting my doctorate at Ball State in their telecommunications program. And that just sort of upped my, um, my knowledge of the topic. And actually this video piece, A Course Morning, was a class project for a TCOM class. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and all of my classmates came up to me afterward. And these are all primarily video driven students. And they were like, hey, uh, could we sit down for an hour? And can you like teach me sound design? <laughs> and I was like, not in an hour, <laughs> you know. Like they were just like, it's like when a, it's like when like a, a, a the, an undergraduate recording major comes up to you and they're like, hey, how do I make my mix sound awesome? Like they're like, what's the plugin? You know, it was kind of, they were kind of hoping for that treatment. It was fun. well, you just push this button right here. It just does it for you. It's fine. So I mean, the the sound, it it does. I mean, the the only reason it's funny is because of the sound. You know, you are you are pairing this. Uh, you know, the, these you know, shots of coffee with very dramatic, sound, you know, sounds. So what are some of those sound sources? And, you know, talk about the the, the sounds we will, we will hear. Sure. Um, so the, the vast majority of it, not surprisingly, is taking a kind of music concrete approach. And I'm primarily taking samples from a, a coffee bean grinder and a, a coffee pot as it brews. Um, I did certainly expand my sound sources as well to things like uh, trains going by and jet engines taking off. Because again, if you want really dramatic sounds, you either have to do an awful lot to the sounds of a coffee pot, not so much a coffee bean grinder. That's a pretty dramatic that, sound. That does it uh, especially if it's uh, one of the burr grinders that crushes, not, gr you know, not cuts, um, which is what this used. And it was... Uh, it was nice. So most of the sounds came from there. A little bit of synthesis here and there, because every once in a while you just need that low 50 hertz sine tone to just, fit, you know, that kind of... <laughs> That's a good sound. Um, yeah, and actually, you know, one thing I, I will say just a little bit too, because um, I, I agree the sound is primarily what makes it funny, but I do think the sort of noir quality of the video adds yeah. to the humor of it, as, you know, because it's certainly not how you typically view a coffee. And, you know, I tried to film it from, like, I, my... my um, Reference shot was 2001: A Space Odyssey when they discover the like the monolith and the camera is like down and low, like looking up at it. That's what that coffee. It's supposed to kind of be like this is the marker, and if you follow it, we will discover alien life. So it, everything is filmed with the camera incredibly low and the yeah. coffee pot right in the foreground, you know, like a, a staggering figure. That's hilarious. That 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 particular movie is 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 what really inspired that. That's that's really funny. So I want to talk about. Um, the very ending of the piece, because it's a very short piece, but and, and I think you accomplish a lot in a very short time. So the ending with the organ chord swelling reminds me of several different films, one of them being 2001. So <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, well, and you know, to me especially, um, and you know, 2001: A Space Odyssey and other sci-fi films' use of the organ, I think often directly or indirectly has sort of a calling to the church, you know, this kind of like discovering of life and, you know, this sort of like greater than man, you know, the, I think we associate the organ with that. And um, for me, that was a big part. I really wanted just to kind of hammer in this concept that a cup of coffee in the morning is like a religious experience. And so the idea of this big organ with just all the stops out, yeah. you know, and plus every once in a while, it's fun at, you know, at venues like this to just sneak in a major chord, you know what I mean? Like, cause it's so rare. And, and I don't mean I'm trying to be like, ah, everyone should bring tonality back, but it, sometimes people are just so afraid, you know, I don't know. Right, that, yeah. um, and it, it worked in the context of this 
this lighthearted, humorous piece to just be like, all right, here is, and I'm, I'm almost certain it's C major, because why not, <laughs> you know? I mean, if you're going to have a major chord, yeah. it should just be C major. The other movie I was thinking of was Interstellar, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. with, with all of the use of the organ. But the very last shot, I want to ask you about the very last shot, because you kind of, uh, d- uh, what, desaturate, mm-hmm. and um, it goes to this very stark black and white, and, the, and it's just a shot of a cup of coffee, and it's a white cup with you know black coffee in it, and you kind of get a yin, yin and yang symbol at the end. So I wanted to ask you about that. You know, was this intentional? What does that mean? So is it kind of without coffee we are meaningless, and without humans coffee is meaningless, or something? <laughs> that that would have also been great. <laughs> um, I, the the sort of general idea behind it was is that like I mean the concept of the the yin yang you know balance right, and the idea that like ideally the perfect cup of coffee not probably made the way it's shown in the video because typically if i make coffee i use like a french press or something that actually makes a slightly better cup i'm not trying to disc whatever i'm not a coffee snob Snob. i know i know it sounds like that but ideally a good cup of coffee is like balanced between like acidity and boldness and bright you know and like all these things and it's steeped the exact right amount of time i that was that was sort of the, the symbolism there that like this cup of coffee in and of itself is balanced <laughs> you know and it's and it's ready and what was funny too is you'll have to watch it again because no one's ever commented on it and it was such a stupid thing to add but that cup of coffee was freezing cold by the time I filmed that right. and I animated the steam so. <laughs> yeah and I was I so happy so, yeah. I was like no one knows you know because like, it's super easy to you know you don't have to do any work to animate steam but I was like all right <laughs> infinitely hot cup of coffee here I go yeah so uh, before we go, just remi- I mean, you already said uh, the website, and that's obviously the best place where you can find this video to watch. We're just going to listen to the audio. So I guess uh, as you're listening to this audio, just imagine really dramatic shots of coffee. You know, uh, quick cuts, big, uh, you know, fast dissolutions and, and, and everything. So, um, but before we go, uh, remind people where they can uh, find your website and connect with you online or anything like that. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, the best place would definitely be my website, which is uh, carterricecomposer.com. Um, and you can contact me from there or, and, and you know, my, my email address is carterricecomposer at gmail. Um, so please reach out. And a number of my works are available, including this one and some other video works. Um, one of these days, once I really revise it, there's a, a sequel which uh, shows oatmeal being filmed, which I, I need to do some work on, but there's an oatmeal piece. Um, and the oatmeal piece is gross because <laughs> it's just extreme close-ups of oats sort of bubbling and the sound of that. Because I put mics just right, you know. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe next year okay. <laughs> we'll discuss oats. <laughs> we'll talk about that at Seamus 2019. Um, so right now we're going to listen to just the audio, and this is A Coarse Morning by Carter Rice.
And finally, I talk with a pretty recent guest on the podcast, Ben Furman, who was on episode 67. Ben Furman teaches composition and computer music at Oakland University and Mott Community College. His compositional processes focus on the exploration of space, timbre, and the interactions of sound sources, both traditional and unconventional, and includes acoustic, acousmatic, and interactive works. His music has been performed throughout the world. So I'm sitting here with Ben Furman. Good to see you, man. We've had a lot of, uh, I mean, see you in person again. We've had a lot of digital contact lately, but... Indeed. Uh, Yeah, we did the podcast swap. Yeah. And um, your piece uh, that is on the very next concert we're going to step into uh, in just a couple minutes is called A Handful of Dust. And it was inspired by your uh, rereading of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. So can you describe the basic idea of The Wasteland um, from which you get the title? and, And how are you expressing what you found in there musically? Uh, okay, well, confession time. Uh, that's ah, program notes. Ah, there it is. And as we all know, program notes are about 99% total BS. So um, I came up with the title after the piece had been written, and I was looking for something that really kind of uh, captured sort of the spirit of the piece. And at the time, I was actually rereading The Wasteland. And there's that famous line in the first part of I Will Show You Fear in a Handful of Dust, which, because of the piece, sounds like a lot of dust against a microphone or granulation and all of that type of processing, I thought was appropriate. Um, although Elliot is referring to uh, sort of the dissolution of uh, his marriage at the time, the fear of aging and infirmity, and just the inevitable descent into death. And does that kind of, uh, does, does that process of, you know, I mean, kind of a, a life, you know, a life lived, does that come into the piece at all? That kind of dissolution and eventual, um, eventual decay or, you know, anything like that? Um, definitely. The piece is drawn from the initial clicks that you hear, which were generated entirely on my synthesizer. And then everything after that is derived from those. And it's evolving those and changing them in the texture before eventually uh, it just collapses under its own weight. And then everything goes back more or less to the original. So you have, uh, as they were describing in the talk earlier, the turd piece. <laughs> You're guilty of the I'm, turd piece. I am guilty of that form, at least. Uh, I mean, everybody does it in electronic yeah. music. You know, you start off, hey, here's my sound, get the audience used to it, and then here's all the crazy stuff I'm doing with it, and now, okay, we're back to the sound. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the talk that that you're referring to is the one that um, Stephen David Beck uh, just just had about basically, like, why what what the hell good is Seamus anymore you know we we basically all write the same damn music and it fits into one of these categories but you know with with something with something like that particular piece I I wonder is it our fault that we're using that or is it the fact that you know in writing new music you have to teach your audience you know you have to teach them what they're what is important and you can't it's very difficult to to just jump into your uh, to your musical language without 
I mean, it's maybe irresponsible as a composer to just jump in and expect everyone to just get what you're doing instead of, you know, having that having that area of, of teaching them what you are going, where is this going and where did it come from? I think that part of it is definitely that part that, yeah, you have to teach the audience, but I think a lot of it is also that we've sort of created these as formal structures yeah. that we're afraid to deviate from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, back on Wednesday, I actually had a premiere down in uh, Indiana for a piece for viola and clarinet that is probably the most experimental I've been with form in a long time. Mm -hmm. So there's a very short introduction where you have the two uh, instruments playing in unison in order to kind of establish the timbre. But then after that, it goes to the maximal level of uh, speed register shifts, dissimilarity between the two, and then everything after that is about the two instruments coming into focus. Yeah. And it takes 11 minutes for that to happen. Mm -hmm. So you, in this piece, you said you were taking sounds from your, uh, from your analog synth. I mean, how, like, how did you discover these particular sounds in your synth? Was it just like chance, curiosity, were you just messing around one day and you, you kind of found, found these sounds to work with? Uh, there was a lot of messing around yeah. and going, what can I do with this? Right. How can I patch this? Okay, oh, hey, that cable's not supposed to go there, but it sounds cool. <laughs> I mean, in a way, a lot of the sounds right at the opening, to me, don't really sound that synthetic. You know, so how are you processing them? And, and, and towards the end, I think there's some really organic sounding textures. And I think it's really interesting that this all came from a synth to start with. But, but you know, basically, how did you, how did you take us away from, or at least take me away from thinking, oh, well, yeah, this is first button, that's synth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, the synth I'm using uh, for this one was the Moog Mother 32. And everything that you hear starts from just a really, really short uh, attack and decay time. I mean, they're all the way counterclockwise. There is no attack, no decay, and it's just white noise with uh, the filters being controlled by uh, my hand. And over time, I'm opening up the filter. I am changing the mix so that there's more and more of a pulse-modulated uh, wave coming through as well and affecting that. But then the processing itself uh, was done, uh, a lot of that on computer, okay. and just running it through uh, in different ways. So the main, the majority of the piece was improvised based on opening up the filter and changing the mix of noise to uh, pulse width modulation. And then from there, once that was recorded, it was going through and doing a second improvisation with how am I bussing these effects mm -hmm. in the DAW. Okay, cool. So um, we're going to listen to this now, and it obviously is a fixed media piece, and it's called A Handful of Dust. Uh, before you, bef I mean, you were so recently on the podcast, but just, uh, I, and I can't remember what episode it was, but it, look in the last, for the listeners, just look in the last 10 podcasts and you'll see Ben again. Um, and then uh, just remind everyone, you know, what's your website, what are your uh, social media handles, and what is your podcast so uh, people can go and listen to that. Uh, well, my podcast uh, that I co-host with Nate Blyton is uh, Patch In, and that's on iTunes and uh, all your other favorite uh, pod-catching sources. Uh, we just did an interview with uh, Lynn Geringer on 
deep I listening. I haven't, li I haven't listened to it yet, but I saw it come out. Yeah, yeah you can totally hear me uh, completely forget the term deep listening. <laughs> go, your pieces like make me think, sound, and stuff. Sound, and very deeply sound. Yeah. Oliveros, uh, <laughs> deep listening. Deep listening. Yeah, that's is. okay. So you can totally hear that in the unedited version. Uh, but then my website, of course, is benferman.com, SoundCloud, slash bferman, and bferman on Twitter. All right. And I occasionally post stuff to YouTube, but it's generally class-related, so, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if, you want, if you want to get your learn on go to, from Ben, go to, go to YouTube. So uh, we're going to listen to the piece now, and this is A Handful of Dust by Ben Furman.
Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.